Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. And for you, I mean, being such an East Coast guy, what a big change, you know, with this ultimate LA band and being immersed in that scene now. Was that an adjustment for you at all? Um, I think culturally, I think I was so shell shocked <laughs> by everything in general that none of it really mattered. Uh, it was kind of, I don't know. I mean, it was kind of, it, it was just a really, I, I was sort of up for anything at that point. Excuse me. Uh, so it was kind of, it was fun. It was fun doing something different and getting out of my element, I think. And, you know, also it was like a paying gig. <laughs> well and so you uh produced the uplift mofo mofo party plan and that's right um great record you know when i first heard it um there was no doubt to me that there was a new energy you know not even knowing what was going on so much behind the scenes um but it was really energetic and jumped off the record um and in general i just think there's more up-tempo material too than what had preceded it but um, yeah, what uh, we tried to make out, we tried to make a record that had more intensity to it because they were an intense live band. And I think I just felt like that didn't come across on their earlier records. And songs like Backwoods and um, wow, you know, um, Flea's killing it on that. Yeah. Yeah, he is. Do you remember anything else about those sessions in particular? I mean, um, that was um, Hillel's final record, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Hillel, unfortunately, uh, passed away right on the very day that we were going to start rehearsals for the next record, believe it or not. I was actually going to go see them in rehearsal uh, after they'd been, I think they'd been out on tour for a little while, and then I got a phone call that he died. They really struggled to get past that. I know. Um, how did you and the band feel about the reception of Uplift? I didn't know what was going to happen with it. You know, I mean, this band were essentially the redheaded stepchildren of EMI Records. You know, why do you think they would let a greenhorn like me go in and make a record with them? They didn't care what happened to them. I mean, to them, to to EMI, I, they, there were people at EMI that actually despised this band, which is kind of hard to get your head around, but the way they treated them was pretty, 
pretty egregious. So when the record came out, I mean, when, when it got mixed and I, and we all heard it, it was kind of like, wow, that's really great. You know, it, it, it was, it was realized in spite of all the many pitfalls that we had encountered making the record. Uh, and we were just happy with that. But when it came out it actually hit the billboard charts and wound up selling three times as many records as any of its predecessors had, I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Okay. And then they started getting noticed around the world and did tours. And I get a copy of the enemy with them on the cover. And they, and I mentioned inside, and you know, this is a very, these are very proud days of my life at that point in time. So I was shocked. I mean, it wasn't massive success by any means, but excuse me, but it was, it was significant. You know, it was, it was really, really something. And obviously it cemented me being able to go in and produce their next record. And how would you categorize the difference, uh, you know, going from uh, Hillel to, uh, you know, John Frusciante in that, in that chair? for the band? I, I mean, it was night and day. I mean, Hillel is a very important guitarist in the Los Angeles music scene, certainly in the Red Hot Chili Peppers. He's one of the <clears throat> tentpole aspects of their identity. Um, and he was a unique stylist. He didn't play like other guitarists played. I mean, he really did establish his own niche. Uh, at the same time, he wasn't really a songwriter. He, he and Flea were very good at jamming together. And, you know, the three of them with Jack, they'd come up with these great parts and they would put them together and compose songs that way. John was and is much different because he actually has studied composition. But unlike people who are just good composers, he actually has a natural affinity for composition. He's got a very unique and special talent at being able to write songs. And he was able to integrate all of his abilities in a really, really like the, the synergy of it. It was, was extraordinary, especially watching him do all this at the age of 17, you know, uh, he was the guy who really brought proper composition to the Chili Peppers. And my feeling has always been that in many ways, their success has really hinged on his, his songwriting and compositional skills. I mean, that's not to take anything away from Flea because his ability to come up with bass lines that work harmonically with John's compositional ideas is I mean, I, no one else can really do it quite the way he does. He's an amazing, amazing bassist. The way he uses the way he uses root notes or has in in the Chili Peppers is, is fantastic, you know. But John is definitely a compositional. I I would say in many ways genius, you know. So there was it was, and obviously he's a different guitarist as well. He doesn't play the same way. I mean, granted. He's adopted some aspects of Hillel's performance style, but in, to, to my mind, there were elements of what he did that always felt more rock. Uh, and he just, 
he added a completely different coloration to the band. And that's, that to me is part of what made them, I, I would say help bring them the, the level of success that they've been able to attain without a doubt. And obviously I wouldn't, I'd be remiss, you know, leaving Chad Smith out of that as well, because he's an extraordinary drummer and he was, he was the perfect guy for them. Absolutely perfect. They couldn't have found anyone better. And Mother's Milk, again, took them to a new level of success and uh, higher grounds on that, right? Yeah, that's right. Right. So that was the, the hit basically off that. And um, yeah. they're getting, you know, more video play. They're getting more play everywhere. Um, so, yeah, you, exactly. You pretty excited about that. Um, I, you know, I, I really didn't know it hit me. <laughs> You know, I was happy when it happened with Hancock's record, but when it happened with, with Mother's Milk, I was stunned because obviously this is, this is like my second major label release as a producer on my own. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden I've got a record that looks like it's going to go gold. And I was being managed by a fairly large management company at that point. And, I was, I always felt like I was at the low end of the totem pole and all of a sudden mother's milk is, you know, they, everyone at, everyone at the management company is calling up asking for copies of, of mother's milk. And I can't even get one for myself, you know? And I was like, what is going on? This is, this is extraordinary. It was, it, it was so much fun to, to, to be in that. And of course, at that point I was absolutely poverty stricken as well. So <laughs> it didn't exactly hurt hmm. yeah it was amazing so that you know parlayed into so many other projects for you why did you not continue on with the chili pepper so um making mother's milk had been a really trying process you know i mean it started back when we were making uplift as well and a lot of that really focused around my relationship with Anthony. Um, we had some we had some fallings out while we were making Mother's Milk, uh, and it was interesting because while the record was being made, uh, Flea and Anthony didn't show up to the studio once Flea's well. Actually, I I think Flea Anthony showed up at certain points while Flea was recording, but. Once we got into guitars, like we didn't see the two of them anymore. And I, it always seemed like the process of making this record was going to be a joint process. But all of a sudden it was me and Frashanti kind of holding the keys. And it was kind of like, what are we going to do? So since Frashanti wasn't really a proven um, quantity, at that point, like we didn't, he didn't have a sound or an identity so much. Like he played with an Ibanez guitar and everyone on the, else on the project was like, no, <laughs> you know, cause that's like a metal, that's like a consummate metal guitar. He got, he had that because he was a Steve Vai fan and everyone's like, no, absolutely not. You know, it's less Pauls and strats for you. And he fought against that. He wasn't happy, but in the end, you know, that's, we, that's how it wound up going. Um, but 
the guitar tone for the record was really kind of established by he and I. So we didn't have a lot of time to make the record. So when Anthony came back in initially to listen to what we'd done, most notably in this case, um, higher ground, because that's, you know, that's got a pretty heavy riff in it, you know. Um, Anthony hears this and he's like, I don't like this. Like he was really, really upset about it. And, you know, I, I was like, well, you weren't here. We didn't have a whole lot of time. What do you want? You know, and over the course of the recording, and there are a lot of other things that happened as well, which included a lot of some of the other people who were in the band in the interim, because there were other people that they brought on board who didn't work out. Well, Blackbird and was what I, was, I know. Yeah, that's right. And D.H. Polygro from the Dead Kennedys. And I was instrumental in, in I, I guess, telling the guys that they really needed to reconsider their choices on who they brought into the band. And those were very difficult conversations. And they wound up rubbing Anthony, and I'm sure flee to a lesser extent the wrong way. Um, so by the end of the record, everyone was more in more of an acrimonious kind of um, relationship to one another. Uh, and when the record was done, I, I saw them perform once live, but that was really about it. And then I was told, you know, they'd gotten signed to, they were going to go with Sony and then they went with Warner Brothers. And then they were getting ready to make another record. And I think Flea reached out to me and said, we all want you to do the next record except Anthony, you know? And that was pretty much it. Like they tried to convince Anthony, but he just wasn't having it. So they, they wound up going with Rick Rubin and obviously the rest is history. They finally uh, got to Rick Rubin. Well, yeah, I mean, and obviously at that point, the project was viable for him. You know, I mean, I initially, I think I was, I, I was very unhappy about, about all that. But over time, I began to realize, you know, the way the world knows this band best is the records that they did with Rick. And who knows what might have happened if I'd made those same records or some of them with them. You know, I think I kind of, I, I was an important a part in their development as a band and I did everything that I was supposed to do up to that point and I didn't really need to go any further with them and it's great that they worked with Rick and it's great that they had the kind of success that they've had you know and it's well it's well deserved they're extraordinary you took them through two evolutionary steps I mean that first record you brought it the intensity <clears throat> the second record brought the tunefulness um pretty significant I think yeah, and I feel that that was what my job was supposed to be, that it was really kind of helping elevate them and push them along. I don't think that any of the other people that they'd work with, certainly not Rick, uh, you know, could have gotten them through those stages. Those were very, very formative um, periods in their development as a band. And they needed to have someone who would, who would be as extreme, I think, as I was and would have been, was as willing as I was to go into the trenches with them. And to me, that's in many ways why they were able to get to where they did. I've heard Frushante talk about, you know, that experience and he found it very challenging that you were really kept kind of pushing him and he struggled in some ways to, you know, make 
um, the adjustment or, or, or hit, you know, what you were going for in certain circumstances, you know, I guess maybe because he was so young and new to it. Um, he, the only things I've seen him comment about was how he and I clashed about guitar sounds, um, which is something that actually never happened. <laughs> One of the things about John that made the process of making Mother's Milk so absolutely wonderful was that he was this little kid who all of a sudden out of the blue was in, as he put it, his favorite band in the entire world. He was, I've never seen a person in a recording studio so with so much joy in my entire life. Like he was, it, it was like someone had taken a small child and said, here's the keys to like, you know, to, to, the, to the Mercedes, like just, you know, have fun, tool around the neighborhood, do whatever you want. And by the way, here's a bag full of hundred dollar bills, go buy whatever you want. No, no holds barred. He was so delighted every single day. He was just beside himself. And it was just wonderful watching him in that, in that state, you know, just doing what he did and developing. Like I, I, pretty sure that was his first experience being in a recording studio and he just he took it with all with the arms wide open and just he went for it and it was just wonderful to watch him go through that whole process were you surprised uh, years later when he walked away the first time um did you think that he was a sensitive soul like that and could see that writing on the wall or no um i ran into him before while well, they were rehearsing for blood sugar sex magic um because we were in the same rehearsal studio building he seemed like he was having kind of a hard time emotionally like getting his head around a lot of things like something was really kind of flipping him around and he didn't seem like he was in the best place at that point in time so when i heard that it happened um i wasn't surprised uh and I, I'm just glad that he was able to get back to a place of uh, relative stability and, and carry on because the world definitely needs him. Yeah, two, two times, uh, he's come back two times, right? Yep, well, it's a family, you know, yeah. it's a family. I mean, I, I think they, re they realize that they're, I mean, they, who knows, they could be as good without him and, and a different guitarist, but, I remember the first time I saw them all play together in a room. It just felt like, boom, like that. Just something had happened and everyone could feel it. It was so uncanny. You know, I mean, it's weird because you can see people who've performed together for years and have this magic about them. But when you see it happen for the very first time when a bunch of people who, some of whom haven't ever played together get in the same room and that happens, oh boy. <laughs> that was really something. It was incredible. I'll never forget it. Hmm. So how did you, uh, moving on, how did you um, connect with Soundgarden? Uh, well, by the time uh, 1992, was it rolled around? I'd, this Soul Asylum record had come out 
you know, it was gold, it, it had gone gold. It was, and it, it's the big song off at Runaway, Runaway Train hadn't even come out yet. So it was like, it was only gathering steam. I was like looking at it and going like, this is going to be, this is going to sell a million records, no problem. You know, I mean, that's, and that's a very strange feeling for a person in my position to have. Um, it was great. And so I knew that I was in the, I, I could be in the running to get lots of other really good projects at that point. And my manager at the time, this guy, John Warner, um, rang me up one day and he was like, do you know who Soundgarden is? And I was like, yeah, you know, I mean, I hadn't really, <clears throat> I didn't own any of their records, but someone had played me some stuff and I saw them perform at Roseland. And he was like, well, they're close to making a decision on a producer. And I was like, well, then why are you asking me if I know Soundgarden, if, they're, if they know who they're going to produce, their, who's going to produce their next record? And he's like, well, it's not engraved in stone. You know, I can set you up with a meeting if you want. I was like, yeah. <laughs> so I went up there and we wound up clicking and that, you know, that was it. You know, that's where, that's, that's how that came together. What was your first impression of Chris? Uh, as a singer or as a person or as a performer? Well, I think we will probably both agree that he was a sensational singer, um, but as a person. Um, he's a, you know, he was, he struck me as being kind of like an iceberg in many ways with nine tenths below water. Um, I think there was a lot of him that he felt that he had to suppress and keep down. Uh, he was a definitely a very complicated individual, you know, I mean, he was, again, like aspects of him seem like they weren't completely reconcilable like you couldn't imagine them being in the same person like alternately he could be very surly and kind of like you know like that and other days he could just be incredibly goofy and silly and incredibly funny you know um i never saw him get overly sensitive about anything that he did but he was really pragmatic about a lot of his own work uh I saw him listen to one of his own vocal performances one time and, and basically say, no, it's not good enough, which is something I've never seen a vocalist do ever. You know, especially when you're talking about a comped vocal that was assembled from six vocal performance that he'd done top to bottom. And by saying that he, he wasn't blaming me, he was holding himself um, liable and saying, I need to sing it better, you know? Most anyone else in his position would have looked at me and would have said, can't you do a better comp or something like that? He took it on himself. He was like, no, I have to sing it better. I couldn't believe that. I, I thought that was extraordinary. And it just impressed me so much that he could that he could actually be that pragmatic about his own work. And when you and came objective. in, I'm sorry, Michael, when, when you came in, they had already uh, had success without Shined, right? It was after that? Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, right. For Super Unknown? Yeah, that's right. right. That was the record after uh, Bad Motor Finger. Yeah. So uh, they were still ascending. And um, what was Kim like? Um, he was great. He was, a, you know, he was a great, he's a great guitarist. Really excellent. You know, uh, they both wound up playing guitar on the record. 
uh, and it was uh, it was good to have two really good guitarists on hand. Did it give you chills at times, uh, just up close in the studio with you know some of the vocals that Chris would get out there? Um, I wouldn't say I got chills from it, but I just remember listening to some of the vocals that 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 we'd you know we we have finished comps and just be like this is going to be so good <laughs> i just sit there listening to it i mean some nights it was really funny because i would everyone else would have gone home and i just sit there and just play a song over and over again that we've been working on you know, I'd listen to it once and I'd play it again and I'd mess around with the compressor on the console just because it, I, I love SSL compressors, those, the stereo bus compressor. And uh, just, just listen and take the whole thing in and kind of go like, and start just jacking the volume up and playing it louder and louder and louder. And the engineer and the assistant engineer are both standing there because they're exhausted and they want to go home already. And I'm like, oh, you don't have to hang around. They're like, no, nah, we'll wait for you. And I'm playing the song over and over again and just like getting the most immense thrill from it. It was just, it was such a pleasure to listen to. Um, I, you know, it, it was, it, 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 I, I could experience it just as a music fan at that point, you know, which is, a wonderful place to be in if you're making a record. I was a Soundgarden fan from first time hearing them. I think, you know, when they did that remake of the Hile Players FOP and then Bad Motor Finger and just their well, sound, yeah. you know, I mean, with that yeah. lower, the lower end and, you know, like taking the Sabbath thing and modernizing it and, and Chris's vocals just, you know, to me was the best rock singer since maybe Robert Plant or someone like that. It was tremendous. Yeah. He was, he was really extraordinary, really, really extraordinary. I mean, he had, I had him singing very close up on the microphone that we used. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. He, he very quickly demolished that with his voice. Like he just fried the diaphragm on this microphone. Fortunately, we had five, we had four others just like it. So they were in constant rotation. And he wound up destroying the diaphragms on all five of them. He had to get them replaced. It was very funny. I've never seen another singer do that. Wow. Yeah. That record, of course, was like their defining moment, really. Um, so yeah. how did that change your life? And what did you observe and how it changed the life of the band? Um, well, you know, I mean, at that point, once that record came out, it was, I, I had carte blanche to do pretty much whatever I wanted as far as producing stuff. But more important than anything else is that it bore out a lot of how I felt about record production. You know, approaching the job of producing a, a record from a more conceptual standpoint, really putting a lot of thought and effort and personal investment into actually making a record instead of going through the motions of recording it 
just the kind of process of how you would go through making a record, blah, blah, blah. You, you know, get the songs, play the drums, play the bass, play the guitars, vocals, mix, master, done, boom, out the door. You know, just really kind of go, what do I want this to sound like? You know, what is this going to feel like? You know, what, what am I envisioning? How am I envisioning the instruments that I'm going to be recording? What do they look like to me? You know, like what are aspects of like this guy's voice? Because Chris, his voice, he didn't sound like anyone else. And his voice did things that other people, I mean, apart from the fact that he had this insane range, you know, he also did this really awesome thing at the ends of some of his lines where he let, let out this little exhalation. He'd go <clears throat> like that. Because he'd be singing so hard, it would be like this guttural kind of like thing. And it just sounded, so, it was so visceral and so sexy. And I was like, man, I want people to be able to hear that, even though it's going to be very subtle. That's like, that's amazing. I mean, it just makes you think of this guy who's putting everything that he's got into singing this song, that it's a real kind of like physical experience that he's trying to get to you any way he possibly can emotionally and sharing the same space with you. He's like breathing on you while he's singing this song. And, you know, the end result being that a person who listens to the song is going to resonate emotionally much more deeply with it because it's so physical and it's so relatable, you know? I mean, those, to me, those little, those details, those are things that really can make a record very, very special. And I tend, to, I tend to thrive on that kind of stuff. You know, I, after making that record, I was able to look at things from, to really kind of establish that perspective in all the work that I did and go like, I don't have to rush to get a record done. I don't have to like get projects done fast because I'm going to make a whole lot of money this year you know, and, and have like five or 10 records under my belt and, you know, make a million, you know, a couple million bucks a year. It's like, no, no, I have a duty to offer these artists I work. I, you know, my job is to help offer these artists something that they will never be able to find anywhere else and to help step them up to the next level. That means going into the trenches with them and working extremely hard and, and, and making a personal investment in their art so that they wind up with something that they'll be proud of and that will live on hopefully long after they do, you know? So Super Unknown really kind of gave me that kind of, I guess, uh, more, more footing in, in, in that way, you know? So I was able to carry on from that perspective. How long did it take to produce that album? Um, it wasn't, egregiously long from soup to nuts it was six months uh it's about two months of pre-production and assembling songs and then another three and a half four if you exclude three the three weeks they took off to go on tour with neil young so it was like six months in total i get uh, upset thinking about it but um I have to ask, you know, when uh, Chris met his, his demise, I mean, was that something that you were shocked about as most other people? I was devastated. I didn't see that one coming at all. Uh, it was horrible. It was crazy because my wife woke me up and she was just like, Chris Cornell died. And I like laughed at her. I was like, what? You know, 
And she was like, no, I'm actually, I'm being serious, you know, because it was like four or five in the morning. And I was like, what? I mean, I just was devastated. I mean, I, and in fairness, like Chris and I butted heads quite a bit making that record. And, you know, by the end of it, we weren't really getting along. Uh, you know, I think that the process was very difficult for everybody making that record, but I felt, and I continue to feel such a, a deep connection with it. I mean, that record, it's funny because a lot of records that I've done, they feel like they're children. Like I've got a very sort of familial relationship. I mean, somewhat proprietary, but definitely familial. You know, like we know one another, we care about one another. We have a deep kind of sense of affection for one another. I mean, that may sound strange, but it's kind of a, you know, it's, I think that that's also a result of the amount of my own effort that, that I put into the process, you know, so when Chris passed, it was just, it was really shocking to me, like it devast, it was absolutely devastating. Uh, and yeah, it, it was, I mean, what, what can you really say? You know, he was a great artist. And it was a tragedy because obviously at that point he was really at the, at the height of his life. You know, I mean, he had a, a family who loved him. He was wealthy. He was, he could perform anywhere in the world and everyone, the whole, the, the entire city, wherever he played would come out to see him. I mean, he was just in an incredible place and then it was gone. Wow. So, you know, how do you follow up a super unknown? Uh, where'd the title come from? Do you know? Uh, well, Chris, as we were going into our second week of recording, I think Chris came to me with demos for two more songs to add to the record. One of them was called Fourth of July and the other was called Super Unknown. And, you know, I played them and I was like, oh, yeah, these are great. They're going on the record, you know, so they that was kind of like a fait accompli right there. So at the end of the project, he was like, yeah, we're going to call the record Super Unknown. And I was like, great. You know, I, I love the title. I love the connotations of it. It just, you know, it just all seemed to click really nicely. And uh, you've also worked with Aerosmith a bit? That's right. Yeah, just two songs my favorite 70s rock band uh for sure oh yeah steven oh, Tyler, yeah. just another one of the all-time great rock singers oh he's incredible absolutely incredible he's and what a professional too he's he he'll push it as long as he has to and then go beyond and when he's done he's like that's it i nailed it i'm done <laughs> he's fantastic just yeah. so talented and he can obviously he can play just about every instrument in there so and he's I, I had a conversation with uh someone else about this the other day he's always just a little smarter than everyone else in the room <laughs> so there isn't a whole lot you can get past him he's always checking everyone out he's you know he's he, he's got a he's got an eye on the situation very very smart man um, I don't know if you 
came across, but for record store day last year, they released uh, like a rehearsal of theirs from 73. I think it was before they had a record deal, even just so no. great. They were so, even in that, you know, embryonic stage, you know, they were so great. Wow. Really? Yeah. Wow. Check it out. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I guess I'll have to, I didn't know about it. Yeah. See what happens when you go hide in British Columbia. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what happened. So years later, the uh, Out in L.A. came out by the Chili Peppers. So obviously there was a lot of stuff in the can that was recorded that hadn't gotten out there and, and that kind of thing. I mean, how much stuff did you record with those guys? Uh, just those two records, really. I mean, they took the version that we did of uh, Fire by Jimi Hendrix and a couple of other songs and slapped it onto an EP called the Abbey Road EP. But that was uh, it was pretty much that uplift and mother's milk what would you think of blood blood sugar sex magic i don't think i got your opinion on it um i think the, i think the records that they've done with rick are all really great you know i think blood sugar sex magic might be the best but then again that's my opinion you know i um i i think that they actually went on to write well i mean under the bridge is pretty as a song goes, it's kind of hard to top. And it's such an unusual piece of music. Uh, you know, I mean, by and large, they've become more balladeers lately. Um, but I mean, none of that's to take away from Prashanti's ability as a songwriter. I mean, he's still really kind of like top of his class type guy, especially for the, you know, for, for a, a rock songwriter per se. You know, there really aren't too many people that can come close to him. I very much like that first record. Definitely my favorite Ruben collaboration is the first one. Yeah, it's a strong record. You worked with Ozzy. I did. And what was that experience like? It was, uh, it, it was pretty interesting. <laughs> How could it not be? Actually, uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, um, he's he's quite a character, you know, as I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, it was at times it was kind of like pulling teeth, you know. I mean, he's uh, he he can be very difficult to deal with at times. Uh, I must say though, he's he's probably he's probably about the funniest person i've ever seen in a recording studio long term although i have to say when rick when rick uh, wakeman came um onto that session to do some keyboard overdubs he had us all on the floor in hysterics so yeah he's a, he's he's the i think he's about the funniest but ozzy would just he has this uncanny ability to tell, tell the same story over and over and over again um but each time you hear it, you and, you and you know what's going to happen, you laugh uncontrollably, no, no matter what it is, because he just manages to make it so entertaining each time. Uh, he, was an, he was an absolute riot. Um, not fun to record vocals with, <laughs> you know, but it was, it was a great experience recording and I'm glad that we did the record the way we did. Uh, he started out with like a pretty minimal um, recording budget. And 
I kind of schemed a little bit to record the record in a way where it would be, it would just blow the record company away so much that they would have no problem investing more money into the project. So, cause we, by the time the record was tracked with just bass and drums, we'd run through all his, we'd run through his entire recording budget, you know? So we had the head of the record company come out and listen to the tracks. And I played him a couple of songs and he was like, I'll give you whatever you want, fine. <laughs> it was really funny and it worked out well. And the record recouped, so that was good. How long did that record take to do? Would you say that was a long record? That was a really long record between assembling songs, um, between um, yeah, I, I had to go all I between I actually came up here to meet with a songwriter, I had to go to um England and hung out with him and a couple of other songwriters. And, you know, it was just like going all over the place and then, you know, track, starting to record the record, getting everyone to actually agree to play on the record, going through different band members. Um, it had to be, oh, it was at least a year. Yeah, it was at least a year. You had gone really from, I mean, this, avant-garde, cutting-edge, electronic music, uh, and the New York scene, and, you know, the Herbie stuff, the Chili Peppers, to, uh, you know, basically more like hard rock, old school type stuff. I mean, that's quite a journey. It's, it's quite a journey. Um, hopefully it wasn't too old school, but uh, yeah. It was it, it, it was interesting how it all kind of like gravitated toward guitar based music when that really wasn't the direction that I had planned or was even interested in going in. I mean, really, as a guy who worked with electronics, for the most part, I was not interested in blues based music at all. And somehow that wound up being the essence in many respects of what I wound up working on. That Osmosis album in 1995 with Ozzy, um, Zach Wilde was on that one. That's right. Yeah. Was now had he already done records previously with Ozzy, or was that the first one? Oh yeah, no, he was he was a member of the family. I mean, he's like Ozzy was his uh, his one of his kids' god godparents, godfathers. Um, I think he might have. No, yeah, they. He was, uh, Ozzy was like godfather to one of his kids. He'd been on uh, a couple of other records with Ozzy. So, you know, he was sort of like, he was the guy. Uh, and he was out of the band or he wasn't going to play on the record when uh, I got involved. And I wanted to make absolutely certain that he did wind up playing on the record. Because at that point, I couldn't imagine anyone else playing guitar with Ozzy. He was definitely though he was he was he had to be the choice, and I'm glad that I'm glad that it worked out that way. And you kind of parlayed that into working on Black Label Society too, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I wouldn't say that I really worked on that record. 
in, in what way? Even though my name's on it. Well, I, I didn't I didn't really produce it. In fact, I, I don't I don't know why my name is on there. <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, uh, it's uh, it's something that I, I really didn't have anything to do with creatively. Okay, well, That's hey, okay. you know, you get points for honesty on the Black Label Society. About, uh, <laughs> yeah. about, uh, well, I mean, I, I really uh, I like uh, Zach and his playing, and I like what he does with that band. So, Oh, he's phenomenal. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.